0: Chapter 38, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years Recollections of P. T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio. Struggles and Triumphs of P. T. Barnum, Chapter 38. Personal and Political Part 2. The Speaker offered me the chairmanship of any one of several committees, and I selected that of the Agricultural Committee, because it would occupy but little of my time and give me the opportunity I so much desired to devote my attention to the railway combinations. The Republicans had a majority in both branches of the Legislature. The Democrats, however, were watchful and energetic. The amendment to the United States Constitution, abolishing slavery, met with but little open opposition. But the proposed amendment to the State Constitution, striking out the word white from that clause which defined the qualification of voters, was violently opposed by the Democratic members. The report from the minority of the committee to whom the question was referred gave certain reasons for offering the contemplated amendment, and in reply to this, I spoke, May 26th, 1865 as follows. Speech of P.T. Barnum on the Constitutional Amendment Mr. Speaker, I will not attempt to notice at any length the declamation of the honorable gentleman from Milford, for certainly I have heard nothing from his lips approaching to the dignity of argument. I agree with the gentleman that the right of suffrage is dearly and sacredly cherished by the white man, and it is because this right is so dear and sacred that I wish to see it extended to every educated moral man within our state, without regard to color. He tells us that one race is a vessel to honor and another to dishonor, and that he has seen on ancient Egyptian monuments the negro represented as a hewer of wood and a drawer of water. This is doubtless true and the gentleman seems determined always to keep the Negro a vessel of dishonor and a ewer of wood. We, on the other hand, propose to give him the opportunity of expanding his faculties and elevating himself to true manhood. He says he hates and abhors and despises demagogism. I am rejoiced to hear it and i trust we shall see tangible evidence of the truth of what he professes in his abandonment of that slavery to party which is the mere trick and trap of the demagogue when a few days since this honorable body voted unanimously for the amendment of the united states constitution abolishing human slavery i not only thanked god from my heart of hearts but i felt like going down on my knees to the gentlemen of the opposition for the wisdom they had exhibited in bowing to the logic of events by dropping that dead weight of slavery which had disrupted the Democratic Party which with I had so long been connected. And on this occasion, I wish again to appeal to the wisdom and loyalty of my Democratic friends. I say, Democratic friends, for I am, and ever was, thorough, out-and-out Democrat." I supported General Jackson, and voted for every Democratic president after him, up to and including Pierce. For I really thought Pierce was a Democrat until he proved to the contrary, as I conceived, in the Kansas question. My democracy goes for the greatest good, to the greatest number, for equal and exact justice to all men, and for a submission to the will of the majority. If I thought I had one drop of blood in my veins which was not democratic, in the light of this definition, I would have it out, no matter what the trouble or sacrifice. It was the repudiation by the southern democracy of this great democratic doctrine of majority rule which opened the rebellion. And now, Mr. Speaker, let me remind our democratic friends that the present question simply asks that a majority of the legal voters, the white citizens of this state, may decide whether or not colored men of good moral character, who are able to read and who possess all the qualifications of white voters, shall be entitled to the elective franchise. The opposition may have their own ideas, or may be in doubt on this subject, but surely no Democrat will dare to refuse permission to our fellow citizens to decide the question negro slavery and its legitimate outgrowths of ignorance tyranny and oppression have caused this gigantic rebellion which has cost our country thousands and millions of treasure and hundreds of thousands of human lives in defending a principle and where is this poor downtrodden colored race in this rebellion did they seize the opportunity when their masters were engaged with a powerful foe to break out in insurrection and massacre those tyrants who had so long held them in the most cruel bondage? No, Mr. Speaker, they did not do this. My democratic friends would have done it. I would have done it. Irishmen, Chinamen, Portuguese would have done it. Any white man would have done it. But the poor black man is like a lamb in his nature compared with the white man. The black man possesses a confiding disposition thoroughly tinctured with religious enthusiasm, and not characterized by a spirit of revenge. No, the only barbarous massacres we heard of during the war were those committed by their white masters on the poor defenseless white prisoners, and to the eternal disgrace of southern white democratic rebels, be it said, these instances of barbarism were numerous all through the war." When this rebellion first broke out, the Northern democracy raised a hue and cry against permitting Negroes to fight, but when such a measure seemed necessary, in order to put down traitors, these colored men took their muskets in hand and made their bodies a wall of defense for the loyal citizens of the North. And now, when our grateful white citizens ask from this assembly the privilege of deciding by their votes whether these colored men who, at least, were partially our saviors in the war, may or may not, under proper restrictions, become participants in that great salvation, I am amazed that men calling themselves Democrats dare refuse to grant this democratic measure. We wish to educate ignorant men, white or black. Ignorance is incompatible with the genius of our free institutions. In the very nature of things it jeopardizes their stability, and it is always unsafe to transgress the laws of nature. We cannot safely shut up ourselves with ignorance and brutality. We must educate and Christianize those who are now by circumstances our social inferiors. Years ago, I was afraid of foreign voters. I feared that when Europe poured her teeming millions of working people upon our shores, our extended laws of franchise would enable them to swamp our free institutions, and reduce us to anarchy. But much reflection has satisfied me that we have only to elevate these millions and their descendants to the standard of American citizenship, and we shall find sufficient the leaven of liberty in our system of government to absorb all foreign elements and assimilate them to a truly democratic form of government mr speaker we cannot afford to carry passengers and have them live under our government with no real vital interest in its perpetuity every man must be a joint owner the only safe inhabitants of a free country are educated citizens who vote the gentleman from milford lives near the old washington toll bridge which spans the housatonic river And he doubtless remembers, as I do, when the Boston and New York stages crossed that bridge, and the coachman would always denounce the infernal bridge monopoly, which compelled him to pay a dollar every time the stage crossed. The passengers would generally laugh and say, let him pay, it's nothing to us, we are only passengers. Some twenty years ago, one of the gentlemen accustomed to travel in that stage was crossing the Atlantic in a steamship. At the hour of midnight, when nearly all were wrapped in sleep, The fearful cry of fire rang through the ship. There were the poor passengers, threatened by the devouring element, and only a plank between them and death. Our passenger, not half awake, rubbed his eyes, and probably fancying that he was in the old stagecoach, cried out, Fire away, I am only a passenger. Fortunately it was a false alarm, but when the gentleman was wide awake, he discovered that there could be no disinterested passengers on board a burning ship nor in a free government can we afford to employ journeymen. They may be apprenticed until they learn to read and study our institutions, and then let them become joint proprietors and feel a proportionate responsibility. The two learned and distinguished authors of the Minority Report have been studying the science of ethnology and have treated us with a dissertation on the races. And what have they attempted to show? Why, that a race which, simply on account of the color of the skin, has long been buried in slavery at the South, and even at the North has been tabooed and scarcely permitted to rise above the dignity of whitewashers and boot blacks, does not exhibit the same polish and refinement that the white citizens do, who have enjoyed the advantages of civilization, education, Christian culture, and self-respect which can only be attained by those who share in making the laws under which they live. Do our democratic friends assume that Negroes are not human? I have heard professed Democrats claim even that. But do the authors of this Minority Report insist that the Negro is a beast? Is his body not tenanted by an immortal spirit? If this is the position of the gentleman, then I confess a beast cannot reason, and this Minority Committee are right in declaring that the Negro can develop no inventive faculties or genius for the arts. For although the elephant may be taught to plow, or the dog to carry your market basket by his teeth, you cannot teach them to shave notes, to speculate in gold, or even to vote, whereas the experience of all political parties shows that men may be taught to vote, even when they do not know what the ticket means. But if the colored man is indeed a man, then his manhood with proper training can be developed. His soul may appear dormant, his brain inactive, But there is vitality there, and nature will assert herself if you will give her the opportunity. Suppose an inhabitant of another planet should drop down upon this portion of our globe at midwinter, He would find the earth covered with snow and ice, and congealed almost to the consistency of granite. The trees are leafless. Everything is cold and barren. No green thing is to be seen. The inhabitants are chilled and stalk about, shivering from place to place. He would exclaim, Surely this is not life. This means annihilation. No flesh and blood can long endure this. This frozen earth is bound in the everlasting embraces of adamantine frost, and can never develop vegetation for the sustenance of any living thing. He little dreams of the priceless myriads of germs which bountiful nature has safely garnered in the warm bosom of our mother earth. He sees no evidence of the vitality which the beneficent sun will develop to grace and beautify the world. But let him remain until March, or April, and as the snow begins to melt away, he discovers the beautiful crocus struggling through the half-frozen ground. The snowdrops appear in all their chaste beauty. The buds of the swamp maple shoot forth. The beautiful magnolia opens her splendid blossoms. The sassafras adds its evidence of life. The pearl-white blossoms of the dogwood light up every forest. And while our stranger is rubbing his eyes in astonishment, the earth is covered with her emerald velvet carpet. Rich foliage and brilliant colored blossoms adorn the trees. Fragrant flowers are enwreathing every wayside. Swift-winged birds float through the air and send forth joyful notes of gratitude from every treetop the merry lambs skip joyfully around their verdant pasture grounds and everywhere is our stranger surrounded with life beauty joy and gladness so it is with the poor african you may take a dozen specimens of both sexes from the lowest type of man found in africa Their race has been buried for ages in ignorance and barbarism. You can scarcely perceive that they have any more of manhood and womanhood than so many orangutans or gorillas. You look at their low foreheads, their thick skulls and lips, their woolly heads, their flat noses, their dull, lazy eyes, and you may be tempted to adopt the language of this minority committee and exclaim, Surely these people have no inventive faculties, no genius for the arts or any of those other occupations requiring intellect and wisdom. But bring them out into the light of civilization. Let them and their children come into the genial sunshine of Christianity. Teach them industry, self-reliance, and self-respect. Let them learn what too few white Christians have yet understood, that cleanliness is akin to godliness and a part of godliness, and the human soul will begin to develop itself. Each generation, blessed with churches and common schools, will gradually exhibit the result of such culture. The low foreheads will be raised and widened by an active and expanded brain. The vacant eye of barbarism, ignorance, and idleness will light up with the fire of intelligence, education, ambition, activity, and Christian civilization, and you will find the immortal soul asserting her dignity by the development of a man who would startle by his intelligence and you will find the immortal soul asserting her dignity by the development of a man who would startle, by his intelligence, the Honorable Gentleman from Wallingford, who is presumed to compare beings made in God's image with oxen and asses. That Honorable Gentleman, if he is rightly reported in the papers, I did not have the happiness to hear his speech, has mistaken the nature of the colored man. The Honorable Gentleman reminds me of the young man who went abroad, and when he returned, there was nothing in America that could compare what he had seen in foreign lands. Niagara Falls was nowhere. The White Mountains were knocked higher than a kite by Mount Blanc. Our rivers were so large that they were vulgar when contrasted with the beautiful little streams and rivulets of Europe. Our New York Central Park was eclipsed by the Bois de Boulogne and the Champs-Élysées of Paris, or Hyde or Regent Park of London, to say nothing of the great Phoenix Park at Dublin. End of Chapter 38, Part 2. Recording by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio.